would you turn with me to your study outlines? And as you're turning, let me welcome those of you that are watching online. We are so glad that you're joining us, as well as our friends in Arco, Idaho, and also at the hangar in Montana. We are so glad that you're joining us for our study of God's Word uh, today as well. And I know I do this every Father's Day, and I say the same thing every Father's Day, but I'm going to do it again. And that is, you know, I just really appreciate the guys that are here today. The men, the young adult men, the boys. Just so grateful you're here because I know the drill. And I say this every year, but I know the drill. On Mother's Day, you do what the women want to do. And on Father's Day, you do what the guys want to do. And I know that for this day, I will have my way. You know, anything, we have a decision, I'll say, well, it's Father's Day. And Kimberly will say, okay, let's do it that way. And, And for you to have your day when you get to pick to do what you want to do and for you to be in church studying God's Word and worshiping Him. I'm telling you, you're my kind of guy, okay? You're my kind of guy. I honor you. And I wonder if all the men and young men of all ages would just stand up right now. Would you guys stand up all across the the worship set here? And let's let them know that we appreciate them. We honor them. We love them. The Men of Purpose Church, we praise God. Uh, for you guys. Very, very good. Four expectant fathers were in a hospital waiting room while their wives were in labor. The nurse arrived and announced to the first man, congratulations, sir, you're the father of twins. What a coincidence, the man said with obvious pride. I work for the Minnesota twins. The nurse returned in a little while and said to the second man, you, sir, are the father of triplets. Wow, what? That's an incredible coincidence, he said. I work for 3M. An hour later, while the first two men were still passing cigars around, the nurse came back. She turned to the third man, who had been very quiet in the corner, (laughs) and announced that his wife had just given birth to quadruplets. Stunned, he could not reply. I don't believe it, he stammered as he regained his composure. I work for the Four Seasons Hotel. After hearing this, everybody's attention turned to the fourth guy who had just fainted dead away flat out on the floor. The nurse rushed to his side. After some time, he slowly regained consciousness. When he was finally able to speak, they could hear him whispering the same phrase over and over again. I should never have taken that job at 7-Eleven. Now, today what we're going to do is kind of every once in a while do these um, uh, what we call um, biographical or historical biblical messages where we look at a follower of Jesus from history, from the past, and look at how he or she implemented biblical principles into their lives. And so we call it, because it's Father's Day, we call it Men of Purpose. If I do it on Mother's Day, we call it Women of Purpose. If I do it on Memorial Day weekend, like I do sometimes, we call it People of Purpose. Because it's Father's Day, we're going to call it Men of Purpose. And, uh, and what we do is we take these uh, figures from history, great men of history, because it's Father's Day, we'll take a man. Uh, last year on Father's Day, Pastor Greg and I did Jackie Robinson, the great player for the Dodgers, and we did him in this way. And now um, tonight, we're going to be dealing with one of these men of purpose, and let me just encourage you that we just love Father's Day here at our church, and Mother's Day, we just love it. We have so much fun, the great media and music music, and tonight we're going to have a Father's Day competition, which is going to be a lot of fun. We're going to have root beer floats. We're going to have the dad's root beer uh, for all of the guys. You know, I always say this is the best advertising day for our church because everybody drives by and they see all these men pouring 
out of the church with brown bottles, swigging them as they walk out. And they say, that's where I want to go to church. So this is one of our best advertising days. We'll have all that tonight. We're going to have a special guest, uh, Dirk Cheatwood is uh, the bad guy on the show The Last Ship. How many of you have seen the show The Last Ship? It was the number one show last summer, and he's the number one bad guy on it. Basically, the premise of the show is that the United States Navy is trying to save the world, and this guy is trying to stop them from saving the world, okay? And so he's going to be with us tonight. I'm going to do a Father's Day interview with him, and then uh, we're going to spend our teaching time on another man of purpose who is the anti-Nazi Hitler assassin spy pastor. How do you like that? Uh, The anti-Nazi Hitler assassin spy pastor, and that's what we're going to be teaching on and dealing with tonight in the same way uh, that we're dealing with William Wilberforce this morning. But this morning, the man of purpose that we're looking at is William Wilberforce, uh, 1759 to 1833. He was the first anti-human trafficking warrior. Now, we take it for granted today that we have human, anti-human trafficking is very much a cause within our country today, very much a cause within our church. And we take that for granted, but how different the world was when Jesus came into it 2,000 years ago. Do you know when Jesus came in the first century AD in the Greco-Roman world, in the Roman Empire, half of the Roman Empire were slaves and half were slave owners. So half of the Roman Empire was owned by the other half. And they just expected it to be this way. As a matter of fact, the great, so-called great philosopher Aristotle said this was to be the natural state of things. Some people, about 50% of people are just born slaves, and 50% are born slave owners. And this is the natural state of things, and there's nothing bad about it. It just is the way that it is. And across that darkened sky came a lightning bolt, Jesus Christ. And he taught his followers that every person has value because they're created in the image of God. And one of his followers by the name of Paul wrote a letter to a man, a slave owner by the name of Philemon, who was a Christ follower, about his slave, his runaway slave, Onesimus, who had become a Christ follower. And in verse 16, these words don't seem very radical to us, but they would have been utterly radical in the context of 2,000 years ago. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dear to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. I love that phrase in the Christmas uh, song, O Holy Night, um, chains shall he break because the slave is my brother, and in his name all oppression shall cease. I love that line. It's probably my favorite line and my favorite uh, Christmas hymn. And, and this is where it comes from, is that here across that context, Jesus comes and he teaches his followers to say things like, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave as a dear brother. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. Now God told us to do this in Philemon 2,000 years ago. And it is to our shame that it took so long for us to implement it. And it took warriors to change things. It takes warriors, God's warriors, to change the way things are into what they should be. And one of those warriors was William Wilberforce. Eric Metaxas writes about him. Wilberforce was the most successful social reformer in the history of the world. His life stands as a shining example of what one human being submitted to God's purposes for his life is capable of doing. He was born in 1759 in Hull, Great Britain. 
His father died at the age of nine, and he goes to live with his aunt and uncle until the age of 12. Now, this was a big development in his life, because at this time, there were very few on-fire Christ followers in Great Britain. Most people, particularly in the upper classes, followed what was called deism, where God just kind of created the world and then walked away from it and just let things unfold on their own. There was no supernatural. There was no miraculous. Uh, It was kind of like they used the analogy of God would take a clock and he would wind it up and just put it and walk away. That's what he did with the universe. And so most people, because of the aftermath of what was called the Enlightenment, were deists, particularly in the upper classes. They were very sophisticated. They said, oh, this whole thing about the God of the Bible and being on fire for Christ, that is so beneath us. And they were so arrogant and so sophisticated, these deists. And so Wilberforce was born into an upper class uh, society home. And so that would have been their attitude. But when his father died, his mother and grandfather sent him to live with his wealthy aunt and uncle. And but what they did not know, and they never would have done it if they had known this, is that his aunt and uncle were these crazy people called Methodists, okay? And they were followers of John Wesley. And there was a great revival that took place in England after this time from the preaching of George Whitfield and from the influence of Wilberforce and the preaching of John Wesley. And so Methodists today, would the corresponding words today would be holy roller, Bible thumper, fundamentalist. They had no idea that they were sending their son to live with the crazies of the family. And while he was there, he came under their influence, and particularly uh, the influence on his life from one of their friends named John Newton, who was a former slave captain, slave trade captain, who got radically saved, came to Christ, gave up the slave trade, became an evangelistic and evangelical preacher, and he wrote the great hymn, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, that saved a wretch like me. And he knew he was a wretch. He had, he had been involved in the slave trade, which was the, the most wretched thing you could be involved in in any generation. And he knew that, and he was amazed by the amazing grace of God. And so for three years, Wilberforce was under their influence. After three years, the parents, his mother and grandfather, got wind that they were crazy Methodists, and they were horrified, and they immediately went and snatched him out of it, took him home, and heavily influenced him till he renounced his faith, and he began to grow up like any other deist of that time, and he gave up his faith. But here's the thing. The seed was planted. And if you ever get discouraged that you've planted a seed and that seed has seemed to die, know that God can water that seed at a later time in life, as Pastor Greg is going to talk about in just a moment. While he's at Cambridge, he meets William Pitt the Younger. And he was elected, Wilberforce was elected to Parliament at the age of 20. You had to be 20 years old to run for office for Parliament. And he was two weeks beyond his 20th birthday when he got elected to Parliament. So 14 days older than the minimum age in order to be a member of uh, parliament. And so these two young politicians uh, in their early 20s began to plot how they could make a difference in Great Britain and change their world for Christ. Miraculously, at the age of 24, Wilberforce gets this very, very significant seat in Parliament, and Pitt is elected Prime Minister. And I love this little poem, a mocking verse that was in the London newspaper at that that time after this development. It said, A sight to make surrounding nations stare, a kingdom entrusted to a schoolboy's care. Isn't that great? Uh, Greg, you take over. 
schoolboy. Okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. So Pitt and Wilberforce had reached the pinnacle of, of power and influence and prestige. And in 1784, Wilberforce decided to take a long vacation. And he was going to go across the uh, French and Italian Rivieras. And just before he left on that vacation, he ran into an old childhood friend named Isaac Milner. And Isaac Milner had gone on to become the Lucasian professor at Cambridge. Now, that might not mean anything to you, but to know that uh, a, a former uh, person who held that post was Isaac Newton, and more recently, it was held by Stephen Hawking. So it's no exaggeration that the person who held that position at Cambridge was one of the smartest people in the world. Well, by, uh, he wasn't just smart. Uh, Milner was uh, known for his sense of humor and his storytelling, and so uh, Wilberforce invited him to come along on vacation. They would enjoy the time together. And by all accounts, they made quite a pair because Milner was a giant physically and Wilberforce was five foot three and weighed less than 100 pounds. And so there's this physical disparity, but, but mentally and their wit uh, and their conversational abilities, they were quite a match. And it must have been something to hear them as they went across all of Europe and all the conversations that they had. But something happened during that long uh, coach ride, all the conversations that they had, that changed the course of Wilberforce's life forever. After a few miles went by, it became clear that not only was Milner this effervescent genius, but he was also an on-fire Christian. He was one of those Methodists. And so uh, we, we see that uh, Milner was not uh, obnoxious or, or rude in his expressions of his faith, but he also held them uh, very firmly and expressed them very clearly. Wilberforce admitted that if he had known about Milner's faith, he wouldn't have invited him on the trip at all. But Wilberforce was intellectually honest, and he didn't shrink away from a, a good debate. And so all across Europe, they had this dialogue, back and forth, back and forth. And Milner, with his vast knowledge and his intellect, was able to, to answer all of the objections that Wilberforce raised about his faith. And so by the end of the trip, Wilberforce had come to believe that what he had held to be true was actually false. And that Milner was right, that the God of the Bible existed, and Jesus Christ existed, and he was the promised Messiah who came, and that the, the Bible, God's word, was not a silly myths, but it was truth itself. And just think about uh, the examples here of oikos that we talk about, that uh, we think about the impact of Wilberforce's life on all of the world, and yet it wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for a friend, a childhood friend like, like Milner. And that when he had that opportunity, he spent that time with, uh, with someone from his oikos that he'd grown up with, sharing his faith with him. As Wilberforce returned to London, he knew that he could not reenter his, his former life with these new beliefs that he had. He, he would become a laughingstock by all of his colleagues if he expressed that. He had no idea how to reconcile his newfound faith and his old life. And so he wrestled with what he was going to do. He thought perhaps he would have to leave the dirty world of politics and, and join a monastery or, or join the priesthood. And so as he agonized over this decision for months and months, it was during that time that he decided to visit his old pastor friend, John Newton. 
Newton was at this time 60 years old, and it appears that he had had no contact. Wilberforce and Newton hadn't had any contact since he was taken back by his, his mother at age 12. But now that he'd come to faith again, Wilberforce uh, could think of no one better to, to counsel him and advise him than Newton. So in early December 1785, Wilberforce went to visit Newton in secret. And Newton was overjoyed to welcome him back and to, to see that he had come back to a, a vital Christian faith. But Wilberforce was, was just painfully burdened at that time. He didn't know what he needed to do, that if he needed to leave this uh, powerful position that he had in politics to pursue God's purpose for his life. And speaking perhaps prophetically, Newton encouraged him not to leave politics at all, but instead to recognize that he had been given that position for God's purpose in his life and that he was to, to stay and fight for what was right. So Newton convinced uh, him that like Esther, he'd been given his position by God for God's purposes, and that, that he could use his faith uh, to change the world through politics. And so Wilberforce vowed to take his faith into that political world, into that position of influence, and to use his gifts and his position for God. That's, this was his calling. But what was he specifically to do? Wilberforce began praying, and, the, and he knew that God would lead him specifically what he was to do. And then two years after that meeting with Newton, he wrote these 20 words in his diary that would direct the rest of his life and change Western civilization. He said, God Almighty has set before me two great objects, the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of manners. Now, the first of those is, is very clear and doesn't need an explanation. It's what he was most known for. But the, the second one does because of the change of language. The reformation of manners, he wasn't speaking about getting everybody to use their please and thank yous and to put the napkin on their lap and use the right fork at the dinner table. He was talking about reforming, restoring morality in his nation. You see, British culture didn't regard uh, human beings as being made in the image of God and having inherent value and, and to be given respect and dignity. And that unbiblical worldview led to all kinds of evils. Uh, slavery was just one of those. And so Wilberforce spent his life and his career fighting many of those evils. Some of those were child labor. At that time, uh, as young as five and six-year-olds worked 10 to 12-hour days in horrendous conditions. Sex trafficking. At that time, 25% of single women in London were prostitutes and their average age was 16. Alcoholism was rampant, and uh, for the entertainment of all the drunken crowds, uh, they would have public displays of animal cruelty, and when that wasn't enough, they would have public hangings that would often uh, end with ghastly public dissections. Wilberforce was beginning to see the world, his society, through God's eyes. And as he did that, he, as he looked around, he saw a world that was void of God's, uh, Jesus' love and truth and grace everywhere he turned. And he knew that God had called him to do something about it. But what is, uh, uh, Wilberforce is one of the, the great men of purpose, not just for what he did, but for how he did it. The first thing he realized was that it was God's battle, not his. It was God's battle, not his. And we see this in Proverbs 21, 31. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but victory rests with the Lord. 
Either God would do it or, or it wouldn't get done. He realized that, that God had called him and positioned him to be an instrument in that battle, but the battle belonged to the Lord and the victory belonged to the Lord. Without God, he could do very little. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 7, Paul says, we faithfully preach the truth. God's power is working in us. We use the weapon of righteousness in the right hand for attack and the left hand for defense. We serve God whether people honor us or despise us, whether they slander us or praise us. Wilberforce, you see, didn't leap into this uh, battle against human trafficking on his own strength. He recognized that he needed to do it on God's strength. First, he waited for a deep sense that God was calling him to do this. And then as he did that, he recognized that it would be God who would win that victory. Underscoring this point was a, a, a letter Wilberforce received in 1791 from, uh, from John Wesley, who was at that time 87 years old, and he sent this letter. It's believed to be the last letter that John Wesley sent. It was just a couple days before he passed away. And here's an excerpt. Unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils, recognizing it was a spiritual battle that he was entering. But if God be for you, who can be against you? Are all of them together stronger than God? Oh, be not weary of well-doing. Go on in the name of God and in the power of his might till even American slavery, the vilest that ever saw the sun, shall vanish away before it. Great men like Wilberforce and, and Wesley recognized that although they had been given strengths and gifts, and they had many, there would be no victory without the Lord and total reliance on him. And his total reliance was, was evident in the way that Wilberforce spent his daily life, spending time daily in prayer and in Bible reading. He prayed uh, fervently by himself and with others for what God wanted to do in their lives and through their lives. He spent time daily reading and, and applying God's word to his life and even memorizing scripture. He had a discipline of memorizing scripture where he even memorized the longest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 119. Well, how was Wilberforce able to persevere in faith through all that he would go through in this battle? He was able to because he lived out his faith in community instead of isolation. Wilberforce was not what we'd call today a, a lone ranger Christian out there fighting the battle on his own. On the contrary, he thrived in community and, and uh, he was intentional about gathering with, with other Christians and continually being in community to find strength and encouragement and support and challenge and growth and teaching. Wilberforce spent time, a great deal of his time in a Christian community that was referred to as the Clapham Circle. And that experience of community didn't happen by accident. It was something that was very intentional. A, a good friend of his, John Thornton, used his wealth to, to buy a huge home in Clapham, which was just four miles away from London, but it was light years away in terms of it was this idyllic village, uh, a different world from the, the world of Parliament. And he eventually bought other homes next to it, and he arranged this place for a community to gather, for people to come for a day or a week or a month or a year and there spend time daily in prayer and in challenge and teaching and encouragement and support. Hebrews 10.25 reminds us of the necessity of living in community. And let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. 
Well, just as it was for Wilberforce in his day, the same is true for us. Living in community doesn't happen by accident. We have to be intentional. In fact, living in community for most of us is against our natural inclinations. But when we take those steps, those intentional steps to, to live out our faith in community, God works in our lives and he, 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 he works in our lives in new, fresh ways. This week, we're finishing our second round of Rooted. And as we do, I, I received a, a message from one of the participants who said, I was fearful about joining a Rooted group. I'd never done anything like it and I was raised not to express any of my feelings. On top of that, I felt inferior because of the things that I'd been through in my life. But in spite of all that, 10 weeks ago, I took the step to join a group. And boy, am I glad I did. As the 10 weeks came, come to a close, I can't wait to continue in my group. I have learned I can be myself and be real, knowing we all have struggles and we, we share them with others. It brings us closer to God. What about you? What is God calling you to do? When he calls you to do something, recognize it's his battle, not ours. And all you need to do is be obedient. And for each of us to remember that God has created each of us and redeemed each of us not to live in isolation, but to live in community. Let's each take that next step to be intentional about living in community to live out our faith. And then as we come down the home stretch, one of the other things Wilberforce did was he made goodness fashionable and doing good fashionable. He made it cool to be good. Now we kind of take that for granted because you will find in our society, even people that are the furthest away from God, it's still cool to help people in need. I mean, even some of the people far away from God, they'll have telethons or they'll have concerts to raise money uh, for people in poverty and that kind of thing. It's cool to do good uh, in our society. But do you know in that time, absolutely that was unheard of. It was just kind of like, okay, if you were born poor or in a tough situation, too bad for you. That stinks for you. Uh, Lucky for me, unlucky for you. That was their attitude. Uh, Caring for those in need was not fashionable. And Wilberforce made it cool to do good. He also made it cool to be a good father. Now, we take it for granted that fathers are supposed to play with their kids. But in that time, nobody did that. The fathers were very disconnected from the lives of their children. Just kind of that was something the mother did with servants, and that's who, how they got raised, and the father would hardly ever be involved in their lives. But Wilberforce was known on Sundays to take his family to church in the morning and play with the kids the rest of the day. And that was like crazy stuff back then. We all take that for granted. Now, that being a good father and a father involved in the lives of his children was unheard of back then, but Wilberforce made it cool to be a good dad and to be a force for good. He made it a a, a value of society to consider any blessings in your life as a cause to bless others. Uh, We take that for granted. Genesis 12, verse 2, where God says, I'll bless you, but for the purpose that you can bless others. We take that for granted. They didn't back then, but Wilberforce made it a value within British society. He was motivated by love for God and others. His political strategy, number one, was he was willing to share the credit with his friends. It reminds me of a quote I love by Ronald Reagan in which he said, there is no limit to how far somebody can go if they don't care who gets the credit. I love that. It doesn't matter how far. There's no limit on how far you can go if you don't care who gets the credit. And that was Wilberforce. Number two, he was willing to work with people with whom he disagreed. 
He had tremendous humility. It would have been very easy for him to kind of wag his finger and say, you bad people and the slave trade. He said, all of us are in this sin together. It's corporate sin. We have all been guilty, he said. The slave trade, not all of slavery, but the slave trade was outlawed as a result of his leadership in 1807 and when he was 48 years old. He continued to work to get rid of slavery everywhere in the world and throughout the British Empire as well. His influence on France, Spain, Russia, and the United States, very influential in getting rid of the slave trade uh, within, our, within our country. Uh, as a matter of fact, it's so appropriate we talk about Wilberforce today because just a couple of days ago, June 19th is what we call Juneteenth, in which it's a celebration of the anniversary of the freedom of slaves within our country. And 150 years ago, uh, this last Friday, just 48 hours ago, two days ago, was the 150th anniversary of Juneteenth uh, within our country. The Emanuel AME Church, where the tragedy took place this last week, was uh, one of the headquarters uh, for slavery and dealing and the opposition to slavery in South Carolina or in that part of the world. And so it's just amazing to me how all these things, this tragedy in Charleston comes together with Juneteenth, um, 150th anniversary, and here today we're talking about the life of Wilberforce. Slavery was finally completely outlawed in all the British Empire in 1833, and Wilberforce died three days later. Isn't that amazing? Just devoted his life, the mission of his life. The whole reason for him being alive was to get rid of the slave trade. He did it, it got rid of it, three days later, he goes to heaven. I love this uh, quote by Eric Metaxas. He says, how God used William Wilberforce to change the world is almost unbelievable. One man who gave his talents and time and energies to God's purposes was able to do so much, but we who admire him shouldn't compare ourselves to him directly. We should rather ask ourselves, am I using what God has given me for his purposes? Do I have a relationship with him so that I know he's leading me? Am I obeying him in all areas of my life or trying to do so so that I can know I am in a real relationship with him? It was in his honestly asking and answering these few questions that lay at the heart of the greatness of the great William Wilberforce. He was the first of the anti-human trafficking warriors but today, we have a modern-day anti-human trafficking warrior. We will put her picture up right now, Tomiko, Pastor Tomiko Chacon. She's our pastor of justice. And she wants more warriors to join her cause. And so you can learn about human trafficking. Um, our area has one of the highest rates of human trafficking of any community in the United States. Did you know that right over there at Holton Gary is one of the epicenters for human trafficking in this part of the United States. Is it any accident that God placed our church with a purpose on the corner of Holton Gary? I don't think it's an accident. But we are doing something about it. Our church has been a pioneer in the anti-trafficking movement, and we're hosting a gathering of church leaders who want to learn how to do what we are doing here. And if you want to find out more, you can see uh, when that event's going to be. Let's stand up for our benediction. Uh, dads, remember... Or not dads, all men, all men. Remember, dad's root beer is there for all men of all ages. Grab your root beer as you leave here today. Swig it with all your gusto as you walk to your car, advertising our church as you do. Uh, prayer room is open right over here. Our prayer team and prayer partners are there. If you'd like prayer for anything, if you um, do not like history, 
Praise God this Sunday is over, okay? But if you do like history, if you do like history, we're doing the same thing tonight with an anti, anti-Nazi crusader, okay? Or not crusader, but an anti-Nazi uh, spy, anti-Hitler assassin. Is that what he is? Okay, all those cool things. We're going to do the same thing with another guy tonight. going to have so much fun. Love to see you at 5 o'clock tonight. Bring one of the guys in your life with you to honor uh, one of the men in your life, uh, one of the, even the boys or young men in your life. Bring them tonight. We'll honor them. We're going to have a great time together, and we're going to do another study tonight, one of our biblical historical messages, just like uh, we did this morning. On this Father's Day, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, and all God's family said, amen. God bless you. Have a great day.